welcome to Great Minds. And as he said mere moments ago, we do have a truly great mind uh, today. And that is the iconic, legendary, Bronx-born Robert Klein. Welcome, Robert. Thanks very much, Matt. It's great. This is such a joy. So, Robert, I, I, I shared with you earlier when we were talking, there's uh, such a treasure trove of material out there about you going back so many years. And I found something from long ago where you were talking about your school days, early school days, and the days of air raid drills and mm -hmm. fears of that the Soviets were gonna come after us. And now we're watching something just like that happen, but only it's real uh, on the other side of the world. I'd love to start in an unusual place with you, but your perspective growing up in that post-World War II era and an era of fear and communism and fears of communism, I should say, um, and what your take is on what's happening today. You've, got, you've seen it from both ends. Well, <clears throat> uh, mutual assured destruction, MAD, M-A-D, has prevented uh, the, the destruction pretty much of the, the world. Um, I think that since those days in the 50s when air raid shelters and air raid drills were taken seriously, um, the danger has never left, except future generations of children and adults. Just it, it's on the back table. No one feels that anyone would possibly do it. And of course, uh, all it takes is one mistake. There have been a few bombers dropping, accidentally dropping hydrogen bombs in the ocean. The Cuban Missile Crisis, I was at my year graduate school in New Haven. I remember calling my folks, tell them to get potable water and, and store baked beans. Um, you know, particularly with, shall we say, less stable entities like Pakistan and India, um, that might, someone just might get a hold of one of these things. I don't think one of the unorganized terrorists. In any case, all of that stuff has never, ever gone away. And it only comes now to people's attention, including your question, because Putin level, uh, raised the level from one to two out of four of his nuclear, you know, and and I'm not one to say, well, he's, you know, he doesn't want to destroy himself. I don't know what he wants, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I think he's a power politician. I just got reading a, a few books about World War I, and it's history repeating itself all over again. Russia always had ambitions beyond its own borders, always, in, in the last two, 300 years. Very true. Uh, just interesting, and, and I... I the detail in your words that I was watching on this video must have been the mid 70s about that experience growing up as a student. I remember that also. I remember fire drills, which was which was sort of the best part of every school day. Of course, you got out. You know. Yeah. Amazing. stuff. I, thought, I was amazed. I never thought people were actually there are people out. I thought when school is in, nobody is in the world. It's, it's, that, it's that philosophy of a tree in the forest goes down. Is it really down? I, I didn't think the world existed while I was in school. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I had absolutely. There were people walking and shopping. Yeah. 
Absolutely true. So I know you love music and uh, I read somewhere and it reminded me when I went years ago to see uh, Barry Gordy's home in Motown. They talk about how they recorded the great Motown sound, that reverberating sound. And one of the early keys to that sound was they recorded everything in the bathroom. I read somewhere that you and your buddies used to sing in the bathroom. Yes, at Dewitt Clinton High School at that, for boys. It's now co-ed for the last 20 years. Shoot, I missed that. Um, we had a, what, what they now call doo-wop. We never called it that. We called it rock and roll. I remember Alan Freed really, I believe, gave it that name and then was disgraced in some scandal and died young. But I had a group called the Teen Tones. There were four of us that knew each other from high school. And the greatest echo sound would come from the boys' room. And um, it sounded like a recording studio. Anywhere else we sang, sounded like we were singing in a toilet. But in the men's room, sounded like a recording studio. In one of my HBO specials, in the late 80s, I did nine of them, you know, and I did the first one. Yep. Uh, I got together some older guys in the uh, bathroom at David Clinton High School, which that summer was becoming co-ed. They were removing urinals. And when they stopped work for us to shoot for an hour, <laughs> and if, if anything signifies going co-ed, it's re removing your arms. Exactly, exactly. So this but it's Duncan, oh my God, it was horrible in there. You know, like all public, ugh. I would hold it in for years before I'd go in any of those public schools. <laughs> oh boy. So there's so much ground to cover with you. I, I, I want to just jump around a little because you mentioned um the nine hbo specials and you did the very first i think it was about 1975 it was 75 uh, uh hbo was a small little division with maybe a couple of dozen employees part of time life and uh, a man named harlan Kleiman, who uh, wound up being an investment banker he died a couple of years ago he came to see me in san francisco i hadn't seen him in years he was programming for HBO and, and all they were showing was blockbuster movies that had been in the theater maybe two, three months before. That was their pitch. You can see this movie with all the cursing and, and complete, no commercials. He said, how about some original programming? And he thought comedy and he thought I was pretty hot and doing a ton of college concerts. And uh, he sent an art director around to look for a good looking auditorium and they chose Haverford College and, you know, a little wooden, beautiful auditorium with the busts of old geezers. And um, it was, uh, I was presented by uh, Bryn Mawr and Haverford College. And it was New Year's Eve, 75 into 76, I believe, and um, showed briefly thereafter. Uh, John O'Connor was the critic of the Times. He, he saw it as significant. This could be something big, you know. And of course, that was the first original programming they ever had. And, um, you know, I never, I never was censored by them. I, I was not the most powerful individual in show business, but I wrote everything I wrote, they accepted. They never were over my shoulder. And there was some, you know, big budgets, hundreds of thousands. And all they cared about is that it looked good. And, uh, 
production values and you know they gave me money to do the, the first ones they produced but then they would give me money and i had to give them a show and i couldn't just do it in an empty room right. so uh, they always looked good but it was a wonderful relationship and michael fuchs was the uh, head of hbo for most of my time then and plepler followed him and, uh, and it, it was a giant and now of course it's getting that old capitalist competition and uh, while I have no shed no tears for them, I do shed tears for a lot of uh, people I knew that worked there. <laughs> when they merged with AOL, Levin, oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of them lost their pensions. Mm. It was a bad move, bad move. And uh, but other than that, it, it was just a wonderful idea, uh, which which has been copied over and over. You know? And, uh, and this documentary about me, it's called uh, Robert Klein Still Can't Stop His Leg, unfortunately involved in the uh, Weinstein bankruptcy. Harvey Weinstein's company produced it. It's on, I think it's still on Star's app, but it's very good. But uh, Michael Fuchs said uh, that Klein and Carlin were an industry. I mean, he was the only one that did a couple more than I did. You know, he, he yeah. would... Once George finished the first one, he'd go on to say, anyway, it was wonderful. Great experience and a terrific experiment that turned out to be a hit. It, it was indeed, and, and you referenced it, but that first special, eight more after that. Eight more after that, and also the first couple, even three, the audiences were confined to HBO. Initially, was in Eastern Pennsylvania, Long Island, and Manhattan. So uh, there is a box set of them that, that was published of, of, of DVDs, but, but a lot of people never saw them, you know? and uh, it's unfortunate. But when you're first at something, then uh, that, that's, the, uh, that's the sacrifice. But I, when I think about it, I mean, I had a talk show on USA Network in 85 and 86. It didn't know its identity then, and I don't think it still does. Uh, when the Comedy Channel was called Comedy the Comedy Channel, it was called, before Comedy Central, I was on an advisory board. What would you like to program? So I, I briefly had a show uh, called Dead Comic Society with really good prints of Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin and stuff, wah, 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 into the Tubi movies. I like you know, the ancients and I guess young people who watch that didn't agree. Well, all right, but we got a lot of success to talk about here as well. So let's stop for a second. And you mentioned George Collin. I want to come back to how history in, in some ways puts the two of you together in, in the front seat of the same automobile. But, but let's go back to Second City. You got to put Pryor in that too, Pryor. Richard Pryor. We're often uh, grouped together. They both had bigger careers. But the three of us, Second City, go ahead. Yeah, so go back there. I'm glad you mentioned Richard also. To something I've had, I've had been lucky enough to talk to a, a number of folks from your world. And everyone talks about that early period when you're sort of finding your voice. Um, and I wonder what your take on that, how it sort of evolved for you and the seminal role that, Second City played, and you work with some great people at a very young age, people like Fred Willard and, um, and David Steinberg. So many. So I'd love to get your take on that era and, and how it helped and shaped you. 
Well, Second City was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I went to one year of graduate school at the Yale Drama School. And there I was, uh, 21 years old, out of work, out of school, never been out of school in my life. President Kenny was assassinated in that fall. It was a terrible time. I began to substitute teach just to get out of my parents' apartment. I'd been in, away from for five years, the Bronx. Um, and my friend, Jimmy Burrows, who was my best friend at Yale, who was the top director of television in California. He, he was running a review in New Haven. He stayed the three years for the Master of Fine Arts. I, I wanted to get out and work, you know. And I did this little review on weekends and a William Morris agent came up and saw the show and told me Second City was coming to town looking for actors. They don't have to come to town any, to New York anymore from Chicago. They have plenty of talent there. But in any case, I was there with 15 or 20 actors in the William Morris Agency conference room. I'd never met Fred Willard. We were chosen to do a spontaneous, you know, an improv together. I guess that's redundant. Improv is supposed to be spontaneous. And we got the job. Billy D. Williams was in that room and... I don't know, maybe a couple others. And I learned more there. And instead of paying tuition, I got $150 a week. David Steinberg was so brilliant there and he wiped the floor with me. I mean, he was just tough on me improvising. But then within a few weeks, he went to London to do a Second City show in West End. And I was left to flourish with Fred and a few others. And it was just wonderful because uh, in two ways. Number one, you learned how to perform multiple performances. Once we set a show, we changed about three times a year, and you said the same things every night like you would in a Broadway show. But then we take suggestions from the audience in a, in an in, you know, after the show and come out and improvise. And with those improvisations formed our next show. So you got training in both acting apart and in, in improvisation. And uh, we were, as, as Steinberg said in that documentary about, he said, we were rock stars in Chicago. I mean, I, I had seen them on the David Susskind show, you know, that old producer at a talk show. I said, this is smart. This is smart show business. This is the kind of show business I want to be in. You know, not a tuxedo and cufflinks and, and, and you know, phony name. And I, I want to, you know, and I'm inspired by Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters. Jonathan was, was apolitical and, and not pushing social issues, but he was a one-man show and an improvisational genius. Any case, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But if Jimmy hadn't asked me to do that show, if that William Morris agent hadn't come up, and if I hadn't gotten that, I don't know. I didn't have the chutzpah to knock on doors. In order to succeed as a performer, you have performing I, I, maybe 60% of it talent, uh, maybe a little more, a lot of it is good fortune and tenacity. And if you don't have that, you can hang it up. So, so, so well said. And, 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 but luck is also the residue of design and you put yourself in a place where you had a chance to be lucky. That's true. And I, I, strangely, I went to a small college in Western New York called Alfred. I went, I, I went, it was a wonderful liberal arts college. 
that that section of it. Uh, a lot of a big feeder for medical schools, and I wanted to go to medical school. I went pre med and I was demolished. I was 16 years old when I went to college. I don't recommend it, and uh, I was demolished by these some of these pre med courses. So my sophomore year, I went out for a play, and the Alfred. Uh, drama department was two men, Smith and Brown, Tweedy types, pipe smoking, and they were wonderful. They had tremendous taste. They were the first uh, college in America to do Bertolt Brecht. We used to read Antigone or, or, or something else from the Greeks every year as a celebration. We had a reading. They were fantastic. So it was uh, Brothers Karamazov and um, a few talented people in that small village in and around the university community. I became a hit. And from then on, I was the Lawrence Olivier of Alfred. And after my junior year, at the end of it, Parents Weekend, these two guys cornered Ben Klein, my father, the peace goods salesman from the Garment Center, born in New York, you know. And they said, Mr. Klein, we think Robert is very talented. And we can, we can get him into the Yale School of Drama. My father said, Yale? Yale? You mean the real Yale to be an actor? Did Eddie Cantor go to Yale? <laughs> and of course he got a point because I, for an actor then, the, the drama coach, Constance Welch, she had coached Paul Newman and Julie Harris, but she was sort of past her prime. And I felt I wasn't gaining much from it. It was better for directors and other things, but, it was valuable because I was immersed. I was, my graduate school was not dental and law, or it was the drama school. And every day I was immersed in theater. And that was important because that determined my direction. So um, that was another link in the chain. What you say, setting oneself up to be lucky. Yeah, great, great story and so well told. It also really set the groundwork for uh, one of the first times I ever saw you. And I'll go back a little further to a chance meeting and a relationship with Mike Nichols. But I remember you so well. I must have been about 15 uh, when you were on Broadway and they're playing our song. But yeah. that began really much earlier, I think, with Mike Nichols. Well, I idolized Mike because he was like even pre Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris uh, before it was even called Second City, called the the um, uh, forgot now uh, what they originally called it. These people from the University of Chicago, the first Broadway show when we came to New York, we did a brief run of Second City. I got a potato chip commercial, a voiceover. Ruffles have ridges and uh, animated thing. And then I, the first Broadway show I ever auditioned for, I got, and Mike was the director. It was called Apple Tree, three one acts. And he gave me some lines. I was basically in the chorus, but in a very small cast, you know. And um, I had heard about the improv, the club on 44th and 9th, right down the street from the Schubert Theater, which was on 44th. And I would, begin to go after my show, because I was interested in stand-up. And I got especially interested at Second City. When I'd introduced the next skit, I would do three or four jokes and I, you know. So anyway, I would uh, go down and, and work out. Alan Alda came and Bob Harris and the whole cast to give me support. And 
the next time I went and uh, I, I saw a lady and her husband and she was performing. She had a tape recorder with Joan Rivers and her husband, Edgar. I said, what a great idea. I'm going to bring down a tape recorder. At that time, miniaturization was unheard of. It was a Wallen sack that made one arm longer than the other, carrying it down 44th Street. <laughs> also, on the very first night, a guy came up to me with a black suit and a red tie, and he goes, I'll tell you, you, know, you were brilliant, okay? You know, it was Rodney Dangerfield. And uh, you curse on your show? You're allowed absolutely, to curse? Absolutely, absolutely. I'll tell you what, you were fucking brilliant, and I'm a tough cocksucker. I said, who is this man? I was, I was not sure if I should call 911. Uh, he said, now you have to come here every night for three years to get it right, he said. And um, he was right. And I, I never had a bar where people know your name and all that. I preferred pot to alcohol. <laughs> but um, uh, I began to go there. And the thing that made me write so much material I used the Second City technique, except not with another actor. The audience, a noise in the room, I would, this stuff, and I would record it. And because there were so many regulars at the Improvisation Club at that time, I felt obligated to keep on changing and writing more and more and more. Finally, uh, I don't go to every detail. I, I have it, it's, it's in my book. The Amorous Busboy of Decatur Avenue, Simon & Schuster. You can get it cheap, I hope, somewhere else but Amazon because they're taking over the world. But I told about it. But Rodney told Jack Rollins about me. Rollins and Jaffe were partners. They, they managed Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, Dick Cavett. And you can see their name on every Woody Allen picture. Sure. sure. That produces. Jack was a wonderful man. He died at 100 smoked eight big cigars a day. Everyone who worked in the office died young and he lived to be a hundred. <laughs> he, he saw me and that was it. Then my career was made. And the Tonight Show I did four or five months later on January 19th, 68. And that first one, and a, they, they, they thought what I was doing was so different than most comedians that they actually arranged for me to sit down. Rudy Tayers was the producer then, before Freddie de Cordoba. And I sat down on the panel as a total stranger for two minutes. And then I did the stand-up. And I did uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show just before the pandemic. And they gave me a plaque with all my Tonight Show appearances. The total was 94, which included... Uh, several guest hosts for Johnny, maybe 10 or 15 of those. That's mm. a lot. <laughs> so I, I'm a, I was a creature of the talk shows and Johnny was the absolute best. He was very generous with his laughter. Sometimes only the, he and the band knew what I was talking about. And love comedy. Oh, Johnny? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, you could see him cracking up with Rodney and Jonathan and Robin and you know he most comedians aren't like that I, I I'm I'm included it's hard to crack me up you know what I mean uh, Jonathan was certainly an exception and uh, when I was younger I, I I sort of am not up on um what's happening in, in I don't like to be I'm on the edge I was just 80 years old on February 8th and um I was so busy just before the pandemic and I actually got lazy. 
I had an excellent pandemic. I hate to tell you, I was so comfortable in my house. Uh, I've been reading and loving it so much, everything I wanted to read and couldn't. And yet I don't want to retire. And, you know, the last thing I did was Will and Grace and that film uh, Before I Go, the one that's on Netflix. And I was working shows and I got some starting in June. Um, In any case, um, I, I just... Can we talk about the Academy Award thing for a second? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't watch the Academy Awards. It's, it's, uh, Michael Fuchs used to have a great party every year, but they, they were serious about watching it. So I didn't like that because they didn't, they didn't want people kibitzing. <laughs> right. But um, of course, Will, Gre- Will, Will, uh, Will Smith was, was wrong uh, to physically assault somebody in front of a worldwide audience of millions in a, in, a, in a violent country, which we are, in which people too often settle disputes that way. But don't let it overshadow the fact that it is now acceptable in this venue where everyone is smartly dressed and you're talking about a high art of motion picture to mock a woman with an immunological disease. My brother-in-law had that. Mike Nichols had it. It's tragic. She's a beautiful woman. You can see she was mortified. Uh, And it's okay to make fun of that. Like, I'm a fan of Family Guy, the animation. I was new to it. My son tried, he was now 38 when he was a teenager try to explain it to me, a baby with an English, you know. And they're wonderful so much of the time, but they don't leave off these jokes of the cop who is disabled in legs and constant jokes about it. I've seen uh, Anne Frank jokes, uh, Kennedy's head exploding. And, you know, I remember that day, like it was yesterday. And, uh, and other things, taste just is out the window. And these comedians and other people are complaining, oh, it's cancel culture and it's woke and it's politically uh, correct. Politically correct is the worst. These people always have the best of it, have the best slogans and we have the worst. You know, uh, they're pro-life. We're, what are we, pro-death, you know? I mean, uh, um, politically correct is like a, a Marxist, North Korean expression. You're not thinking politically correctly. You know, what's wrong with calling people what they want to be called? I mean, I've been talking about the Washington Redskins. It's on record. It's one of my HBO specials from 40 years ago. Would I like to team the New York Jews? Come on, you Habes, let's do it, baby. You know, I mean, and also, As a student of history, which I majored in, my education, both in high school and college in history, was so superficial. I didn't realize that Fort Bragg and all the major uh, military installations, so many of them in the country, are named after Confederate generals who were traitors. Nothing less, nothing more. Traitors. This nostalgia about the South that that throughout my entire childhood where, you know, now you see Fred Astaire in blackface, makes you want to vomit. You know, I mean, it's true. Things are a product of their time. TCM, when they show Gone with the Wind, there's a sort of disclaimer before it. 
I'm talking about lynching and statues of, you know, uh, of, of traitors that were put up not right after the Civil War. Right after the Civil War, people considered the South traitors. And if Lincoln had been killed, things might have taken a different turn. But all these statues went up very late in the 19th century into the 1920s. So that people of color go to work every day and there's uh, <laughs> Stonewall Jackson, you know, and all these people who, many of whom went to West Point, took an oath of allegiance. I uh, just, uh, you know, we're not that, we're not there yet that you can just say anything about anybody. You can see that, that racism and bigotry are still anti-Semitism. Embers are, it's more than embers in parts of the world, you know, so... And the terrible things that people tribally do to others from, from um, uh, Myanmar to, to the Middle East, to the Pakistan and Indians, people who even look alike and talk alike, killing each other. So maybe that's what we are. Well, I, I, I sure hope that we're not, but, but I, I fear so much that you, you are right. You know, I, you remember in the aftermath of George Floyd, one of the symbols that came up was the Pettus Bridge. And that was very much in the news. And I didn't know who Pettus was. And I looked him up. He was a senator from the South. But not only was he in the Senate, uh, he was in the KKK and was a grand dragon in the KKK. Uh, and his name is still on the bridge today. Yes. And also... Little details like Woodrow Wilson was a hero in, in my youth. My father claims to have sat on his lap in the year he, he, he uh, lived in Washington, D.C. as a little boy. He was at the Easter egg rolling. And I was taught that poor man trying to the League of Nations was a racist. He, he, he screamed uh, 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 birth of a nation at the White House. He put he put back by years the gains that people of color had made in the federal employ, uh, you know, making it harder. Um, you know, uh, who, whose name do you take off? Whose name do you don't? Uh, do you not? Uh, George Washington, <clears throat> a slaveholder. He did release his slaves upon his wife's death, which is something because he needed them before that to work on the property. Jefferson, slaver, Madison, slaver, all of them. They were, you have to take the good with the bad. They were brave and, and brilliant people who lived in a certain time. But the hypocrisy of even um, some historian, a terrific guy named Kaplan, I, I was reading about John Adams and I fell in love with John Adams. He said, authors tend to fall in love with the character, the historical character writing about um, <laughs> because uh, you know, I mean, their, their little thing called the uh, Alien and Sedition uh, Law, which, which John Adams and his wife, Abigail, their letters are superb, by the way. Um, and that series on HBO and, and the book it's based on is fantastic. But I mean, he was also uh, bad, you know. But I mean, the, the hypocrisy around Jefferson, even in, in 1999, Joseph Ellis' book about Jefferson, says there really isn't much evidence to uh, link him with the, you know, the Hemings family, you know. He didn't want to come admit it. And, and uh, people were resentful when it was revealed. And 
you know, not only was Sally Hemings uh, a slave, but she was his wife's half-sister. So his dead wife, he had a slightly bronze, beautiful version of his dead wife. The whole thing is perverse, but they started something. And there were people then, many people who knew that there would not be a union unless there was slavery. And it was finally fought out in the 1860s, which makes Lincoln, I mean, Washington has to be in the upper echelons because he gave up power at its pinnacle, which no one had ever done in history. But Lincoln was the man who, I mean, depressive to boot. Um, I mean, he also, he probably used the N-word when he was young. I mean, you know. So, I mean, there was a limit to, to what, you, what names you change and, and, and uh, who you condemn, because things are a product of their time. But, uh, I don't know, put it this way, a, a, a democracy is very delicate. And if you don't agree that the guy, candidate A, if you don't agree that he won, we're in trouble when someone obviously won. So these people are toying with it, you know, for their own immediate gain. It's also manifested in infrastructure, how these people only care about what they can show their constituents now. No one plans 10, 10 years ahead to build tunnels on the rivers to, to improve rail. I mean, this California railway is stuck. You, you see a picture, I saw a picture in the Times the other day of 20 bullet trains from a drone up above in, in a Chinese maintenance yard. Looks like Flash Gordon. You know, I mean, we have, we have the Acela train, goes 65 miles an hour if you're lucky. I mean, it's ridiculous how, how gutless and how uh, lacking in any future foresight. And I, I, it's mostly, I mean, the Republican Party is gone now, but I mean, I can't be so proud that I'm a Democrat, you know, because they also want to get reelected all the time. There's basic structural problems that may not be uh, solved at any time soon. I, I, what was your question? <laughs> well, I, I, don't even, I don't even know, but I, and I don't know that it matters. You know, I, I'm a Democrat as well, though I voted for Republicans. I, I remember voting for D'Amato when he used to bring home the bacon for New York. You know, he was a real, you know, go-getter, if you will. Perhaps a I'm not speaking to you. I'm sorry. I don't. I'm no longer speaking. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, perhaps a little corrupt. Perhaps a little corrupt. A little corrupt. Uh, Democrat, when I was a kid in the Bronx, uh, any Republicans running for local office, there'd be a mustache on their face on the poster in four seconds. But uh, I, I am with you as a Democrat, but I feel like we're on a, like the Mets in a really bad year, you know, that we're just a bad team. And, and I thought you said something before, you, you know, how the other side is so good with language and how they use language, use like politically correct and pro-life. I thought those were such great examples. And you also used the word union and you referred to our delicate democracy. You've seen a lot, Robert. You have the benefit of perspective. Uh, uh, what's your take on what the hell has happened to our country right now? And, and how do we repair and become a union again? Well, there was a, uh, uh, I think Trump was a turning point. Um, uh, they always talk about there used to be more comedy in, in the uh, legislative branch. 
guess that's true. The Senate is the stuffiest, richest body in the world. Uh, but um, American history is replete with violent disagreement. <laughs> Make no mistake about that. And, and a press uh, saying the most outrageous things, even about George Washington, uh, the great Thomas Jefferson uh, enlisting a, a, a lying publisher uh, to, uh, to be on his side, who later double-crossed him. There's a lot of that shadiness. Trump, the Trump election crossed the line because Hillary Clinton would have been a perfect president. Uh, and I don't care if you want to have a beer with her or not. Um, anytime a woman is, is strong and, and, and powerful, uh, where it seems that way, she has an extra burden on her. And I don't mean Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is uh, an imbecile, uh, because you know she just says things that don't make sense. Um, but there was a 25-year vendetta against her, um, from starting with Whitewater, and and somehow she was blamed for her husband's indiscretions. I mean, that guy was a really is a really bright guy. He was a decent president. People made money and all that, but she got the blame for for his not being able to keep his schmeckle in his pants. He had, um, you know, uh, a, a, a BJM, Bad Johnson Management. It is a big consultancy in Washington, and it's growing by the day. Johnson Management, and uh, you know what company is in the lead, ironically, in Johnson Management. Johnson and Johnson, Johnson management. <laughs> and I try to advise these uh, members of Congress to try to keep the pecker in their pants. That was in a song I wrote with Bob Stein, was nominated for a primetime Emmy. It's called Hymn to America. And it was extorting, um, ex exhorting, exhorting, exhorting uh, uh, President Obama not to, uh, you know, uh, cheat on his wife. Um, but anyway, um, uh, you had a president of the United States standing next to Vladimir Putin, who interfered possibly significantly in our election, certainly with misinformation, and saying, I don't know, I have no reason to doubt him. I mean, uh, and once, once a lot of people accepted that, you know, it, it's all right for the evangelicals, for example, to say, yes, we know he's a sinner. Yes, married three times. Yes, we're stooping a, uh, a porn actress while his, his wife had just given birth to a child and he tried to pay her off. Wouldn't that usually cancel a presidential candidacy? But all of these people have decided that this kind of character, as long as he um, furthers their aims, which is to get their way, um, and to get their their beliefs in play and, and the hell with all others that he sent from God, the evangelicals would say. Of course, the country was in, in, in a sort of mortal danger while he was president because he didn't have a lick of sense about what's going on. He knew nothing. We in New York knew he was a clown. I mean, you know, I, whenever I bumped in, they should have known immediately the power structure in New York, a lot of Democrats should have shut him out the minute 
he said that Obama wasn't born in this country. I think that with these, uh, with the Supreme Court giving primacy to the states, which is what the activist Supreme Court of the 56 and 50s and 60s reversed by saying, no, even though you're Alabama and you're a state, you have no right to keep, you know, when they, the Voting Rights Act, when they gutted it, the very next day, most of these states, not only in the South, but elsewhere, made it more difficult to vote because they theorized that more voters are Democrats and that uh, immigration, which we desperately need, we need people to fill jobs. It's interesting how we're going to welcome uh, Ukrainians, and I'm all for it, but people of color, um, not so much, you know. Uh, these uh, pobrecitos from Mexico, you know. I mean, who mows people's lawns in Los Angeles and gets paid for it and, and cleans houses and all that? And it's not a bad way to start in life, but even Latinos um, who have established themselves here said, well, we're here, we don't want anyone else here. You know, that's the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Uh, if he opens his eyes, Everyone is an immigrant here. Everyone, uh, you know. Uh, if, if you want to start with the with the British coming here, <laughs> uh, you know the the Pilgrims and and the settlement in Virginia, there were other people here before them, and even those people came from uh, the Asian Bridge. So um, you know, it, it's just it, it, it's very sad that history repeats itself. And this idea of free speech, I can say anything I want, take a joke. You know, I'm not using the N-word out of hate. I'm just saying I'm not, you know, making fun of your, uh, it just, um, it, 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 it isn't right for people to not be called what they want and to be deprived of voting and the powers that be. You know what, some comedian, I don't know who, made a wise, wise uh, uh, suggestion that all the senators and, and, and congressmen should wear on their suits the uh, emblems of the, all the companies that give them money, like they do in NASCAR, you know? And uh, it, it just, it's bought and sold. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't bargain with the drug companies because they give too much money to the legislators and they say uh, innovation will be uh, pinched. You know what? I know someone who worked for a drug company, a physician, and they came out with a new drug that was not uh, unique. Uh, the drug was, uh, its purpose was, uh, I mean, the other drug companies had uh, similar drugs. And they said, what should we call it? And they threw around names. How much should we charge? And they said, well, what are the other ones charge? You know, right. I mean, please give me a break. And they have a poor woman on television whose child has a rare illness saying, please don't do this because then the drug company, please don't uh, uh, let the federal government negotiate in all fairness, lower drug prices. So like Canada has, like other people. It, it, it really is unfortunate. I'm, I'm not a socialist. Socialism is dead. And socialism is, doesn't work. In, in the, the purest form of socialism, in my opinion, 
was the original kibbutz in Israel. Bunch of orphans from Europe, parents are killed. They're stooping like crazy with shorts on and doing the horror and wearing khaki shorts in 1948 and 49 and 50. From each according to his abilities, to each according to their needs, perfect for starting a community. But now a lot of the kibbutzim are, are uh, that's plural, notice I knew, knew that Hebrew. Uh, a lot of them are big corporations. They make electric things, whatever. There's something called a moshav in which you don't get according to your needs and share everything. You share the equipment for the farm, but you earn your own. Who do you think does better? The moshav. In the Soviet Union, we pretend to work. They pretend to pay us. It's stupid. But there's nothing wrong with a capitalist, powerful, rich country to have a proper safety net for all its citizens, at the very least, medical care. Right. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, there was a great podcast I listened to, Adam McKay did, uh, called Death, Death at the Wing. And he traced the rise of the NBA and the politics of how the NBA has evolved and Reaganism and the gutting of the social safety net. And I learned quite a bit. And what's happening here today and what, you know, what happened in the last four years of the Trump presidency, God willing, only one term, that stage was set long ago. That didn't just come out of nowhere. Well, how so? What do you mean? Well, I, you know, you look back at, at Cheney and you look at the rise of Roger Ailes and the rise of, you know, it was Roger Ailes who started with the American flag on the lapel and the America first and all of that and created this counter culture movement built, I think, and I, I imagine you agree, built on a false premise and a lot of false promises. Well, that's another area. They took over the wearing of flags. I mean, uh, when when um, uh, the day that uh, that Biden was elected, I put a, a, a what I usually use for my July Fourth party a, a red, white, and blue ribbon on my door. Right. Uh, I mean, it become it became associated with right wing. These people don't even have the, the slightest notion of history, of how unique this democracy is, of how the last time it was tried was Greece. Rome for a short time, you know, and it didn't work. Um, the idea of fair play, uh, uh, McConnell of Kentucky was married to a trillionaire and, and her company, her father's companies, Chinese shipping companies. And here in, in Kentucky, people have only recently discovered shoes. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, a thing on uh, a 60 Minutes about these... Uh, welfare frauds, uh, most of them were white people. They come up in a pickup truck, they walk out, go in, get their disability check. I mean, I didn't see anything done about that. You know, if it's for your own, you can break the rules if it's for your own. That was a disgrace with uh, uh, not allowing uh, Mary Garland to, to be uh, a Supreme Court justice. And also unfortunate because I don't see him doing much as attorney general. There's, there isn't much time. Yeah, not, because uh, not often, <laughs> even if criminal charges are lodged against any of these people, there'll be a new attorney. Oh, there won't be a new attorney general for well, yeah, the midterms won't affect a criminal charge. OK, um, 
I don't see any action there. And I don't, how, uh, how Trump does it, uh, I don't know. Uh, I wish I could cheat banks like that. I always pay my mortgage. Um, and, and, and I went to a, a thing at his apartment, a fundraiser for a Democrat, a judge, a judge, you know, years ago, he probably, you know, did him favors or he wanted him to do him favors. He was a Democrat. He was in New York. He wasn't really anything. He was apolitical, but, um, you know, he's just an opportunist. And, and, and these, these, you know, uh, let them eat cake children. He has these, 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 you know, these grifters. Um, and so much of America is convinced Fox News is, 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 is very, very toxic. But even this, you know, RT used to be on uh, Russian television. Larry King was on there. He made a deal with them while well, he was still alive, of course. He had a show brought in on RT. I mean, do people have any sense of what happened to our uh, enemy? I mean, the guy. I mean, and, and that was the biggest thing. In my, in my life, I never, ever thought I'd see the Iron Curtain come down. All my studies were, you know, uh, uh, about containment and, and, and you know, they, that life there. The Russians always suffered. The Hungarians had better manufactured goods, even though they were an occupied territory of the Russians. Um, you know, I, I, I never thought that I'd see the, the uh, Iron Curtain come down. And then one hoped that this would never happen. This is so retro, this invasion. It's amazing to me, and it really is this one man, a burning desire to put Ukraine back. Ukraine was separate so many times, has fought back so many times in World War I, earlier than that. And there were, you know, the Russians have been at war with them in many ways for, for a long time. And they, here they are, an independent country, by the way, headed by a comedian. Comedians rule. A, Jew a Jewish comedian. Jewish comedian, yeah. Wonderful story, uh, but man, uh, you know, uh, and even now you have uh, uh, like Tucker Carlson going to Hungary from which my parents, uh, my grandparents came in 1903. Um, they didn't experience pogroms, but lots of anti-Semitism. Uh, and here he is going to this authoritarian thing and praising it and all that. I mean, I, 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 he was always snotty and, and disgusting to watch anytime he talked with his bow tie and all that. There's recordings of him saying vile things about, you know, uh, prep school girls. And I mean, he's, he's just, he's bad news. And Laura Ingram, who went to Dartmouth, <laughs> I can't believe it. I think she uh, adopted two black children. Sometimes people think when they do something like this, like I'm a... He was a terrible man, but he had a, a, a farm for children being treated for cancer. A lot of bad people will do something that looks good. I don't know. I'm going on like crazy. Oh, no. I, 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 me that. I used to read the, I, I, the New York Times. Um, I, I can't really read it in detail anymore. I get very upset. And uh, even watching the news on television, which I would do religiously for the most part, it's, it's just too bad. The news is, and I find that if I escape it through reading or watching, uh, you know, a murder mystery on television or, or 
a movie or something. I, I don't think about it as much. Uh, I will vote, but I'm not, I don't feel like giving lots of money to the Democrats. And what do they do with it? I mean, they're not doing a great job. You brought that up briefly. Um, they, they don't communicate well to the public. Uh, the, they, the people consistently vote against their own interests, you know, uh, and, and the, the social stuff. I mean, 60% of Americans believe abortion should be legal. They, the, 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 the legislatures are way ahead or behind their own constituents. And, and to make excuses for the January 6th disgrace, and there wasn't more, uh, there weren't more, uh, there wasn't more force out there because Trump was president. No, nobody wanted to really do anything. That's the essence. So we've touched on so much, but earlier you mentioned uh, Richard Pryor and, and we touched on George Carlin. And the three of you are really linked uh, in American cultural history, not just comedy history. You're still here today, still working, still completely on top of your game. And it's got to feel a little odd. It's, the alternative is much worse. But in many respects, Robert, you're the last man standing who so many others, you know, stood on your shoulders. Names like Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and Bill Maher and so many others. They all stood on your shoulders. You know, they're all in my, in the, it's not my documentary, but Marshall Fine, who was just retired as the chairman of the uh, New York Film Critics Circle. I gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, I said, I'm so sorry I couldn't be with you tonight. I was there, of course, but <laughs> so many, in a hotel room in Paris, I said, filming. Um, uh, all those comedians, uh, well, a number of them participated, Marr and Billy and, and uh, Leno and Seinfeld and all saying how they were about six years younger. They were in high school or college. They saw someone like Leno said, um, very I, I think uh, uh, it, it really stood out. He said, when you live in uh, Western Massachusetts and you're into comedy, people commiserate with your mother. You know, is he still into that comedy thing? You know, is he giving up? <laughs> you know, and you could point to Robert Klein. Hey, he's a normal guy. He went to college. He went, you know. um, in fact, that story is circulated. In the very last Leno Tonight Show, Billy Crystal was a guest. And he said, you had the dirtiest, crummiest apartment, not dirty, he said crummy apartment in Boston. You had one decoration on the wall. It was a Robert Klein poster, child of the 50s. And apparently that, everyone's remembering that. Um, yeah, I, I guess um, I was not for the everybody, I guess. And also I, I of course I used profanity like, a good novelist would. It's part of the language, but not every other word. And um, uh, Pryor was amazing because when I first met him at the Improv in 67 or so, late 66, he uh, he was in show business before me. So was, so was George. Um, but um, he, he was sort of collegiate. He used to do Merv Griffin's show from the, that little theater uh, next to Sardi's. And he was so cute. He was so funny. He had a white rigid sweater. And so I actually asked him, because I was asking his advice. I hadn't been on a talk show yet. I said, what college did you go to? And he, he fell off the chair laughing. You know, he was brought up in a brothel. I didn't know that. He disappeared 
in 68 for about a year and a half. That was the traumatic year of all the assassinations, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, riots. Uh, and he came back as a, a, a completely, well, not completely, but a different Richard Pryor, not political particularly, but raw. And I, I sort of give him a pass for language because that's authentic to him and, and all that. It's, sometimes it's a little tough on the ear, but it still has shock value. George, um, I, you know, I, you read some of the stuff that he wrote. It's, it's so clever. Not only that, but his seven words you can't, you can't say on television or uh, wound up at the Supreme Court, which is quite something. I think towards the end of his career, he was awfully dark. I, 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 uh, the last time I saw him, um, we did a little turn for Seinfeld, who was doing an HBO special. We were sitting in a cemetery. I have the picture up there. Un unfortunately, most of the people in the picture are dead. Ed McMahon and, and uh, uh, the guy from Arizona who had the mock talk show. I can never remember his name. Wonderful comedian. Um, and George and Alan King. Anyway, uh, you know, stuff about uh, fuck crippled children, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I just don't like it. it. It just, it was dark. He talked a lot about suicide and all that. But his body of work is tremendous, and he was wonderful and um, uh, and wise, an autodidact of sorts, not as extreme as Groucho, but, you know, Groucho had a sixth grade education, and uh, George got thrown out of Cardinal, Hill's high, uh, Cardinal Hayes High School, but they, they both learned things on their own, and... Um, you know, I respected him for that because in his street kind of streetwise ways, he was intelligent. Um, Rodney Dangerfield became my Yale drama school for stand-up. We made an unlikely pair. He called me the next dimension, you know. Um, he, he was kind of awed by my uh, intelligence, if you will. And uh, we were pretty much inseparable for 10 or 11 years. I followed him on gigs. I learned the technique. He was the one that got me Jack Rollins, my manager. And, you know, I didn't see him as much later. He had terrible upbringing, parents that didn't care, his father deserted. I saw them have a rapprochement on the beach in Miami Beach when Rodney was just starting to get known. He said he had throat cancer, the old man, he said, Keep up that no respecting. It's good. Keep it up. You know, Rodney was also not an autodidact because he didn't read, but he was streetwise, intelligent, and, and uh, he knew exactly the image. He started rather late because he had been a comedian, Jack Roy. Um, but anyway, uh, he was like the best joke writer of all time, and and. He became more dirty and, you know, stuff like, you know, when my grandfather sneezed, we had Christmas decorations. But early on, he had things like, I'll tell you, our parks are unsafe, our streets are unsafe, our schools are unsafe, but under our arms, we have complete protection, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've played some tough places, you know, Vito's, formerly Vinny's, formerly Aldo's. 
formerly Nunzios, Artelius Nunzios was a tough club, you know. You went to, when you went to Nunzios, you went down three steps, physically and socially. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's Russell Baker. That's Art Buckwall level. He was, he was a wonderful, wonderful. But, um, you know, I, I saw Bosch Belt comedians when I was a kid. They told, you know, not deep jokes, but they came to this small hotel. I was in a little boy. My father had a good year. We spent a week at a tiny hotel. And then later on, when I was a busboy, when I was a lifeguard, I saw live comedy, these guys in the Bosch Belt, Larry Deutsch, Bernie Burns, Lou Menchel. They'd come up in their Cadillac, they'd get out, they'd do 35 minutes, 40 minutes. People would stomachs hurt with, from laughing. And for that little period of time, they forgot their disappointment in their health or their marriage or their children, and they were laughed. And I said, wow, what a way to make a living. That put the bug in my head. My father was hilarious at home. He was a textile salesman, but he was a he improvised, he was a clown. He was bipolar probably, had little somber moments too, but he was funny and humor was a way of life in my house. But doing it professionally, rather than in the living room for your family, doing it professionally on demand at a time and place of someone else's choosing is a different thing altogether. It requires technique and preparation. So you're such a, a keen observer of culture to this very day. One of the great barometers, if you will, of American culture the last almost 50 years has been Saturday Night Live. And you go back to season one as a host. I think that was also about 1975. What, what do you remember from that era and that incredible cast that launched Saturday Night Live when Lauren put it on the air all those years ago? I'm not an expert because I haven't watched it a lot since those days. I'll still wager they were the best cast of all time in that show. They were Second City people who followed me by a few years. Um, Lauren Michaels, I remember him as a meek young kid, believe it or not, because he's not meek now. Um, coming to my manager's office, Jack Brown's office, for advice. And uh, it, it was thought when the show started that I was already too big to be among the cast. I was, a, But I, was, I hosted the fifth show in the series in the first year. And I gave uh, Lorne Michaels some very bad advice. I said, don't do this live. Everyone's too nervous. The technical staff in 8H, where I did two specials in 1981 when I was under, under contract to NBC. It's, it's still the studio they use. Um, the, 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 the staff had not done a live show since Howdy Doody. I mean, you know, these guys were nervous too, as well as the cast. But of course, I was wrong and it turned out to be great. Um, Everyone was very nervous. They were they were a great group. Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Ackroyd is is he's really a very nice man. He, he's he's idiosyncratic, highly intelligent. Belushi was sweet as sugar. He just fell through the cracks, man. You can't do that. You kill yourself. As a matter of fact, one of the sketches I did 
in my second appearance in 77, I would have hosted it a few more times. They asked me and I had movies and I had things I couldn't do it. I would have liked to do it a few more times. But um, I did the uh, Giant Lobsters Take Over New York sketch written by Michael O'Donohue, who died very young, even though he made death jokes all the time. And one of my lines, I was like the guy, you know, when the, the, when the Zeppelin blew up, the Hindenburg, you know, oh, the humanity, oh, you know, that announcer. I said, oh my God, John Belushi is dead. We knew he wouldn't live long, but this is just too, you know, that was actually a line in the sketch. Um, it, it was um, when I went to sell a pilot to CBS, which I did in 75, it was a half hour. It was sort of Monty Python-ish. And it was my, I put my heart and soul into that. And my two best friends in show business, Madeline Kahn and Peter Boyle, were my guest stars. And Michael Keaton was an unknown. Uh, we had two boys and two girls to do the sketches, plus Madeline and Peter. His name was Michael Douglas. He had to change his name. We saw him do a stand-up in Santa Monica. And he was adorable, you know. In any case, when I was selling it to CBS, <laughs> mentioned Saturday Night Live, they said, oh, they dismissed it. You know, it's on late at night. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not prime time and uh, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> 46 years, whatever. Oh my God. So, um, yeah, I had a few of those, you know, pilots that uh, the two uh, specials I did for uh, NBC in 81, I was supposed to be a a Sid Caesar will have an hour show every week, but they just did the specials. So they were really funny. I had wonderful writers and um, great cast. My Madeline and Peter, it's ironic that I was so close with them and they died well before their time. Yeah. Oh, two brilliant, two brilliant, brilliant comedians. Very. Oh, gosh. Gilda, I didn't know Gilda as well, but she died in the same thing as Madeline, ovarian cancer. Two of the funniest women I ever knew. Uh, but Madeline, I knew way before anyone, you know, before she was, I knew, her mother used to be a vocal coach. I knew her mother. She lived in Queens and uh, we were briefly lovers. In those days, you you, uh, you were too curious if you had a platonic friend. Uh, but we were, you know, she actually introduced me to Brenda Vaccaro, who I went with a couple of years. But anyway, uh, um Saturday Night Live was, I thought they were the best cast. And uh, yes, there were drugs. There was Coke laid out on the table. There was plenty of pot. Uh, how they got away with it at NBC, I'm not sure, because it's a stodgy place. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to put things on the walls and that old, they're gorgeous. It's still a great, great set of buildings, Radio City. It's gorgeous. But um, Ackroyd and Belushi had women's panties all over the room that women sent them and all that. Um, I don't know that they sensed there was going to be something great, but 77, two years after it began, they started to realize they were popular. And Lauren said, you know, the kids are the stars now. I said, yeah, they, they are. They're getting, you know. So um, I, I just don't watch it much. I, You know, show business, man, is so, has been so all-encompassing and takes a lot out of you and you have to see what's going on. And I was never too good at that. I depended on 
good management and agent. And uh, I left my manager after 37 years. You don't have to talk about that. But um, I, I just, I don't, I'm not in, I, I'm not up on everything. I, 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 I'm not too keen on who's the new comedians and all that. I prefer my own world. And um, at the beginning, um, when I didn't, I didn't listen to George Carlin's album Two years in a row, we were against each other for the best comedy album, the Emmy Award, uh, Grammy Award. And I didn't want to listen to his. I guess maybe I was envious or whatever, but also I told myself, I don't want to hear anyone else. I, I don't want to copy anyone else. And when people copied me, I was furious. Rodney was always very furious when people stole his jokes. Do you know that a stand-up comedian like myself I, I have less power in protecting my work than Charles Dickens did at, had in 1853 in London. Really, um, I, I saw one of my good lines on the front page of New York Times a couple of years ago. There was an article, a quirky article on page one about the opening of the squirrel hunting season in Tennessee. And it said, some people think of a squirrel, blah, 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 blah. Other people think of it as a rat with good public relations. It was a good, good line of it that I had as part of another bit. Oh, when I long ago said about Cosby, you know, that it's only a case of he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said. And then a few weeks later, I see it in the Daily News. I mean, people could think of things simultaneously, but you know when your work has been stolen. Yeah. Anyway, it's still considered a kind of, the Bosch belt, my God, they stole each other's material all the time. On the night of April 5th, Channel 13 in New York and WLIW is airing a, a, a documentary I narrated on camera about 10 years ago called When Comedy Went to School. And it's about the Bush Belt Hotels and the comedians who came out of them. And it's really wonderful. I love that. It's listed as Benjamin Franklin is on, listed on PBS for that night. But I'm assured by the producers who spoke to PBS that we're, they're going to show that. Um, any case, uh, there's a woman on it was a, a gross singer's relative. Gross yeah. singers was one of the yeah. biggest of that. And she was a teenager and she used to tell the incoming comedian what jokes the other one told so he wouldn't tell the same ones. I split a bill with a, a, a Bosch Bell comedian I won't name. And he opened the show and I see two or three of my jokes. I said to him, hey, man, you know, those are my jokes. He said, oh, they're yours? In other words, he thought, well, but there's someone else's I can steal. Oh, they are. I stole them in front of you. You know, so uh, there was, there's still a, I mean, it became, with all these people looking into it, there were wonderful, very thorough books being written about stand-up comedy. Um, I forget these guys' names. I spoke to them endlessly, like a lot of other comedians. But the first one was Phil Berger's book called The Last Laugh. And it was um, around 73 or four. And uh, there have been many subsequent. It's become a kind of art. It be it's become a profession. You know what I mean? It was, a lot of young people tell me they want to be comedians. They ask me for advice. And um, uh, 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 Robert Brustein, who was not dean of the Yale School of Drama when I went there, but subsequent, he heard my album, Child of Fifties, and he contacted me about a, having doing a fellowship at Yale to teach stand-up comedy <laughs> and to start a political cab uh, a cabaret like Second City was. 
and I was hot as a pistol. I was making a lot of money. I'm not going to go up to New Haven twice a week for $9,000. So I had to turn it down. I said, when I'm old, I'll do it. But I mean, it, it's become now, it, it, it's become part of its curriculums. Stand up is, is a term that people understand and know. Fantastic. And Robert, we touched on it before, but just to wrap, for the first time in about two years, you're going out back on stage in front of a live audience. Are you excited? Are you nervous? After all these years, clearly this is not your first rodeo, but that's got to conjure up a unique set of emotions for someone, uh, even of your caliber and stature. Well, I have to say that uh, I believe for my age, my marbles up here in my head are uh, in good shape. The best dollar I, I think I have spent is for 30 years, I've been working out with a trainer three times a week. He, he was here earlier today, uh, lifting weights, walking fast on the treadmill. I used to run, I used to run outside. In fact, I can't do that anymore. But um, So I can memorize my lines when I do a movie or a television show. The thing is, these are my routines and I'm not well-oiled. So I have to either get in front of an audience. I have to get together with my longtime colleague, Bob Stein, with whom uh, I've written a lot of music, two of which were nominated for primetime Emmy Awards for the, they were done in the, in the HBO specials. And he also produced my last four HBO specials. He's also a wonderful pianist and conductor. We've done symphony dates where he conducted the Philadelphia Pops 70 piece orchestra and he writes arrangements. And I think we're gonna actually rehearse, you know, I, which we never had to do because he worked, I know what to do. And I guess it's a bit like riding a bicycle, but I don't know if I get on a bicycle right now. Okay. So um, I am a little apprehensive. Um, I think I've always had the idea like, it never occurred to me that I'm too old to do this. I'm better at it than I ever was because I have more experience, more technique. But um, I think work is life in a way. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't like the feeling before I go on. It's not like I'm nervous, but it's like I have an obligation. It's like when you have a final and you want to pass it, you know. Sure. When I get on, it can't get me off. I, I, I enjoy so much people laughing. And also, after all these years, the affection over the footlights. You know, when I started, it was more or less like a bullfighter where the audience was, they didn't mean to be mean or anything, but they don't know who you are. And my material maybe wasn't as good as it, it would be later. And so it was more adversarial. Uh, I, I do enjoy it, and I like the satisfaction afterwards. So I do think that um, keeping it going even a bit longer, although I have to admit, I loved in the last two years having almost no obligations, like this damn obligation for you. Yeah, to disturb my day. Apologies. I, I was, uh, you know, smoking a joint, snorting glue, and I had to here and do this. Uh, there is a certain truth to that. And I think I'm in better shape 
for my age than most people are. I'm not a health nut with respect to what I eat and everything. Also, genes. My father was never sick when he was a working man. He got hepatitis somehow, turned into liver cancer, and he died. Never even drank. So that was just a freak accident. And uh, I don't know. I, I get sentimental sometimes and a little bit um, uh, melancholy that maybe I'm just as glad at some point in the next years to leave this world because I don't like what it's doing and saying. I do love this part of the country. I live just north of New York in the Hudson River Valley. And uh, I gave up my apartment in New York after 20 years because I wasn't using it that much. Right. But it's still my favorite place in the world, New York City and its environs. Um, I, I'm an honorary Angelino, but I, I dislike having to go there, especially when I have to stay there a while. I feel lonely. I've rented houses, took an apartment, but I never moved there. And um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I like working, but I, it, it's up against that feeling of, oh, my goodness, I've worked for 57 years. When Fred Willard and I reported for work at Second City in Chicago in March of 1965, that's 57 years ago, just back. Poor Fred died a couple of years ago. He was in great shape for most of his life. He was brilliant. I loved him. And when I had dinner with him in California, that last time I knew it was the last time he was really fading, but he was just wonderful and a great career. Well, you are wonderful and are still having a great career. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. It was such a joy. I, I could, we could go on for hours. You are uh, easy to listen to. Thank you, Matt. I'm so handsome. I'm sorry you didn't put this on television. We are back. Okay, Robert Klein is here tonight. I look forward to having Robert Klein on the show. He's a very observing, witty guy, and he's hosted his own cable talk show. We've received two nominations. I think they call him the Ace Awards for that show. And Bob will be appearing February 4th in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at the State Theater. Would you welcome Robert Klein? <laughs> There's one more phobia we failed to mention, bombophobia. <laughs> this is a special esoteric phobia. They have the brass section has plinkerophobia. Uh, Jim and Tammy were at it again. Johnny mentioned it last night. They're asking for a million bucks. Or they have to go off the air, Jim and Tammy Baker. This is a chance for all of us to do a tremendous public service <laughs> and save ourselves a million bucks. <laughs> If you forbear the appeal, I mean, you know, I know the, the tears come down, you know, the hand goes to the pocket. If you forbear, we might have something constructive on, like wrestling at that time. <laughs> if you come to Madison Square Garden on April 14th, you'll see who's better, Iranians or Russians. Why is it that when a wrestler hits another wrestler, he also stumps the canvas? I mean, it's inefficient. While you're trying to stump, Ed sells them life insurance, by the way, so he's not laughing. They don't even need an exam, these people. They can be a corpse, come up and get the life insurance for some reason. Um, 
Oral Roberts did this last year. I didn't think it was fair. I didn't think it was cricket. He said that uh, they, the Lord told him if he doesn't get uh, six million, uh, he's going to take me. He's going to take me. He made God into a blackmailer for a couple of years. I, take him, I was saying. Take him. You know, my... Because it's important that Oral Roberts University go on. Because how would you like to wake up in the middle of an operation? Don't worry. The doctor says, I got my medical training at Oral Roberts University. You know. My feeling is when you're named Oral, you're skating on thin ice to begin with. Um, there's quite a bit to answer for. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor and go to medical. Most of the people I knew in college went. I, 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 I wanted to be a doctor. A few things got in my way. Calculus, physics, biology, zoology, chemistry, organic chemistry, spelling, reading, comprehension, uh, attendance, behavior, inclination, and talent. I went in for history, political science, the proper preparation for comedy. The only medical kick I ever get, I'm looking to give the Heimlich maneuver to a beautiful woman. Always with a negative result. No, Mr. Klein, I am not choking, and I do not breathe through my breasts. You know. Just... So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.